I'm going to be reading from a familiar passage of Scripture today, Isaiah chapter 9, the first two verses. So let's just read them together. Isaiah 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. As I was reading over this text this morning, I recalled something that I had forgotten, a memory in 1976. Uh, this was the first text that I ever preached on publicly. Um, that was a long time ago. And I had seven pages of notes. I still have those notes in a box upstairs in a closet. And uh, when the pastor turned the service over to me at about 11.15, um, I was done in like 10 minutes. Seven pages of notes in 10 minutes, and he was left wondering what to do with the rest of the service. Um, I have uh, seven pages of notes today. I promise you it's going to take more than 10 minutes. So uh, you just uh, buckle your seatbelts and get ready. Pastor Johnny began a, a series last week called The Light Has Come, and he introduced that series by talking about John 1, that incredible passage in John chapter 1 of the light that was to come, and uh, it was a powerful message. He talked about the calling of light. Today, I'm going to talk about the confidence of light. You know, during very turbulent times in the Old Testament, there was a prophetic assurance that lingered there that the darkness that Israel was experiencing would one day give way to light, and that's what that prophecy that I read to you was all about. Today, I want to give to you the same assurance that Israel had as we are walking through some very difficult days as individuals, as families, and quite frankly, as a nation. And we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to give birth to a prophetic confidence that in the midst of this time of darkness, the light will come and the light will not fail. Things will not stay the same. The light will shine. Let's pray to that end. Father, we declare today, Holy Spirit, that You open our eyes. You open our eyes to, the, to a prophetic confidence today that even though we are in the midst of darkness, we can expect the light to come. We can expect You to shine. And so, to that end, we commit this time in Your Word, that things are not going to stay the same. They're going to be different. Open our eyes to the truths of Your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, our text is taken from one of the more well-known prophecies in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied this text that I read to a people who were, as he indicated, living in darkness. And he said that the people who were living in darkness were going to see a great light. He prophesied that in the midst of the darkness that there would come a birthing of a confidence, and that confidence was clung to after he prophesied through the years until it was ultimately fulfilled 700 years 
after this prophecy was given, in the birth of Messiah. May God grant us this kind of confidence today to face these days. Now, like any passage of Scripture, chapter 9, which deals with the light, is best understood in its context. We always look at the context of Scripture. We never interpret Scripture without looking at its context because we get into danger in doing that. And so, it is impossible to really get a grasp on this light coming until we get a grasp on the darkness. And so for that, we look at chapter 8, and we're going to take a quick journey in, in through chapter 8 and see how God's people ended up in darkness. And I really encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. If you don't have your Bibles with you, get your smartphone out, um, and don't be checking your email because God will tell me and I'll call you on that. <laughs> Just kidding. But anyway, following your Bible is something we should get in a habit of, really, is bringing our Bibles or at least our, our phone Bibles because uh, God wants to speak to us. Sometimes we need to have that handy. Anyway, Isaiah chapter 8, I'm going to begin reading in the first verse. The Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it in an ordinary pen, Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. Everybody say that with me. Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. And I will call in Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah as reliable witnesses to me. Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, Name him, say it again with me, Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. Before the boy knows how to say, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. What a strange direction to Isaiah. He said, I want you to take a scroll. In other words, I want you to make a poster and take an ordinary pen and have two witnesses standing just to make sure that, that, that they're witnessing what you're writing here. And I want you to write down these words, Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. And so, Isaiah obviously did that. He made a poster, basically, that said, Mehir Shalal Hashbaz. Now, after that, it says he went to the prophetess, which was Isaiah's wife. He went to the prophetess, and that word means he, sexually he, they had intimacy, and she conceived and bore a son. And God said to Isaiah, I want you to name the baby Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. Now, how's that for a baby name? I mean, think about that one, Abby, and those of you who are having more children in the future. That's a, that's a great name, isn't it? <laughs> you imagine calling them to dinner, Mahir Shalal Hashbaz, get back in here. Um, but here's what it means. It means hurry to the spoil, make haste to the prey. Hurry to the spoil. Make haste to the prey. Let me give you the background here of this passage. In the political scene, we have God's people in the land of Judah. Their capital city is Jerusalem. They had had a, a, a national division 300 years before this time, and Israel and Judah split. So, Israel had 10 tribes to the north, and there are two tribes down here in Judah. Judah's capital down here is Jerusalem. Then we have Israel with its capital of Samaria. Sometimes those ten tribes are just 
referred to by the name of their capital city in the Old Testament, Samaria. And then we have to the north of them, we have Syria. And then to the north of Syria, we have Assyria. So, Judah, Israel, Syria, Assyria. The nations are lined that way in a slight angle to the northeast. And so, that's what's going on. And politically, Judah is at war with their own brothers, Israel. And Israel was having a hard time beating Judah, so they decided to make an alliance. And so, they went to their north, just due north of them, and they made an alliance with the king of Syria. The king of Syria joined with Israel. They began to fight against Judah, against the people of God, the covenant people of God. And in the midst of that fighting, it got the attention of the guy way up north, the king of Assyria, and he decided he's going to take the whole bunch of them. He's going to just flow. He's going to take his armies. He's going to hit Syria. He's going to take Israel. Then he's going to take Judah, and he's going to own the whole region around the Mediterranean, on that side of the Mediterranean there. That was his plan. And so, the word of the Lord comes to Isaiah, and he says, I want you to name your baby Mahir Shalal Hashbaz, hurry to the spoil, make haste to the prey, because before the baby learns to say mama or dada, which happens usually between seven and nine months, before the baby says mama or dada, Syria and Israel are going to be conquered, and Judah you are going to be next in line for this judgment that's coming. Now, that was good news. There's going to be, a, you know, I'm saying that facetiously. That was not really good news at all. And there was going to be this domino effect where Syria was, go- uh, Syria was going to begin, and they were just going to begin, nations were going to begin to fall like dominoes. And Judah, who is being prophesied to by Isaiah, finds themselves on the end of this row of dominoes, and they said basically, once Syria and Israel fall, Judah, you're next. You're next. You're going to get it as well. Now, nobody likes to feel they're at the end of a row of uh, destruction and affliction. You know, some of you might be there in life right now. You're, You're at a place where at any moment some event could trigger a chain of events, and maybe that chain is already happening and the dominoes are falling toward you, You're at the end, and you're facing a time of darkness that seems to you to be overwhelming. And you have to ask yourself, how am I going to respond to this growing darkness? The way that you respond is going to determine whether you will descend deeper into darkness or whether you will see the light arise. I find it interesting that God's people are always have the advantage. They have the Holy Spirit to comfort them, to tell them what's coming, and so on. In fact, there was a Gallup poll this past week that came out, and some of you may have seen it, but of, of the, all the groups of people in America, there is one group of people whose mental health improved through the COVID crisis. And that group of people were Christians who were in fellowship every week. They, have, they answered the poll by saying, we are in fellowship every week, and we find that our mental health is actually improving. And so, I want to encourage you today that though you're facing difficult things, we're not into denial around it. We're not denying what you're going through. 
But in the midst of it, we can know God in a way and have the assurance that that light is going to shine. But here's what happened to many of the people that Isaiah prophesied to in his day, and it serves as a warning to us. When we face a threat, we are tempted to turn from God to something else. Anytime you're facing a threat, you need to be aware of the temptation to turn from God and to something else. And that is exactly what happened here in Isaiah chapter 8. In verse 5, the next verse, it says, the Lord spoke to me again. Now, he's going to clarify what's going on in their hearts. Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shaloah and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the river, the king of Assyria with all his pomp. And it will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks, sweep all the way down through Syria, Israel, into Judah, swirling over Judah, passing through it, and Judah will be in water up to the neck. That's significant. Water up to the neck, not drowning, but water up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Interesting. These verses are showing us where the confidence of Israel was. The prophet says, all of this is happening because you have rejected the waters of Shiloh. God was saying, if you want to have light, if you want the light to come, if you want to avoid the darkness, keep drinking from the fountain of life. Don't reject the waters of Shiloh. Now, what are these waters of Shiloh? Well, Shiloh was the name of a spring that is still in Jerusalem to this very day. And people don't realize that Jerusalem was not full of, there, there weren't rivers flowing by and big lakes or anything like that. There was one continuously flowing spring in Jerusalem. Shiloh was it. Basically, the city had one source of water, and it watered the entire city and the, the outskirts of that city. And so, from ancient times, this, this was a source of refreshing, a source of life for the covenant people of God. It was the, the waters of Shiloh signified the throne of the kingdom of the house of David, the, the waters signified the coming of Messiah, the flowing of the redemptive plan of God that would end in the Messiah. In fact, in the book of Nehemiah, the spring is actually referred to as the king's fountain when they were rebuilding the walls, and, he, and Nehemiah mentioned several times, it was right by the king's fountain. This came right from Mount Zion where the throne of David was, and it refreshed the king, and it refreshed the whole region. That spring was incredibly important. The spring of Shiloh was a messianic prophecy of life, of the sustaining of life. But Isaiah said instead of receiving these life-giving waters of Shiloh, their hearts had drifted north to another water source called the Euphrates River. You've heard of the Euphrates. It had a lot to do with uh, ancient history. It's amazing. Uh, the part that it played, even in Bible history. And, but the people were looking at the Euphrates. They were enamored by the evil empires to the north. They had turned from the spring that God provided for them. 
They were enamored by the evil empires to the north. In other words, they were saying, we've got this dinky little spring here. The Assyrians have this great big river, the river of Euphrates. How nice would it be to live along the banks of a river like that? That's what they were thinking. And furthermore, he said they got all enamored with Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Rezin was the Syrian king. The son of Remaliah was the Israeli king. They're all enamored with these people to the north. They're kind of depending on them to be a line of defense to protect them from the big guy up north. And they're all enamored by that. They're, they're all enamored by the world, and they're enamored by what they don't have and what the world does have. And I want to say, don't ever, ever be impressed by what the world has to offer. I don't care how little you have. I don't care how little you are getting by with or whatever in any area of your life. Don't be impressed by what the world has to offer. Whatever the world offers, wealth, prestige, power, sexual fulfillment, on and on we could go. Whenever we turn away from the fountain that God provides, we find ourselves thirsty for things that will never satisfy. Oh, they look better. The river's bigger. It certainly has more water. But they'll never, never satisfy. And we find ourselves impressed, as they did, with people, this resin and the son of Remaliah. We find ourselves impressed with people who, frankly, don't impress God a bit. But we get enamored with celebrities. And so I asked today, who are your heroes? And the psalmist said, I can't remember the psalm, but he said, I will let the godly of the land be my heroes. We have to ask ourselves, who our heroes are? Are they people who are enveloped in darkness, who stand for everything that's opposed to the kingdom of light? Think about it. So God warns His people here in this passage, don't be impressed by the world. He says, the big Euphrates River that you so admire is going to become a destructive force. And he uses it as an illustration, as a metaphor of what was about to happen. He said, the Euphrates is going to overflow its banks. A flood is going to flow down through all those nations, and you're going to get it up to the neck, Jerusalem. In other words, this which you admire, this Euphrates, this army is going to come like a flood and just about wipe you out. And so, I don't have time to comment on much on this portion of the prophecy, but that's exactly what happened. If you know your Bible history, Syria and Israel were flooded out. The people carried captive to Assyria, but God spared Jerusalem, though the water came up to her neck. And what happened was the king, Sennacherib, came down from Assyria, and he put a siege to the city. And you can read about that later in chapters 36 and 37, but he put a siege, and it looked like it was over And the angel of the Lord came out and killed 180,000, I think it was, Assyrians that night as they were had Jerusalem under siege. It'll come up to your neck, but it won't destroy you. The prophecy was true. So, again, don't turn from God. Don't turn from the fountain of living water and be drawn away to a river that seems impressive but is only going to unleash a flood of misery. Turning from the fountain will leave you unfulfilled. You will search for things that will never satisfy you because whenever men displace God, they immediately set out to replace Him. 
Always when we displace God, there's something in the human heart that is driven to something higher and greater than we are. And when God is turned from, when the fountain is turned from, we will try to replace Him with something else or someone else. And again, verse 19 of chapter 8, Isaiah, when men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they don't speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. They will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. And then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. Now, it goes without saying today that Christians should have nothing to do with mediums and spiritists. Isaiah said they make strange sounds. Uh, The King James says they peep and mutter. He's mocking the way that the little chirpy sounds that they made when they were calling on the spirits of, of the dead. He said, why would you consult the dead on behalf of the living? Instead, he says, your cry should be, to the law and to the testimony. In other words, let the law and the testimony, let the Word of God be the dominant force in your life. And if we turn from God's Word, it's because we have no light of the dawn, he said, and distressed and hungry, we will roam through life. And when we are famished, we will become enraged. Do you see anger in America today? You see, people are distressed hungry. And when they're distressed and when they rejected the fountain of life and they get distressed and hungry, which naturally will follow, we become angry. And there's so much anger, so much anger in our world today. And then we look up. And our tendency is when we've forsaken the fountain is to blame the fountain. They look up and they curse our God and our King. And once they've cursed God, they have nowhere else to look but down. Then he says, they will look to the earth. Isn't that interesting? When we turn from God, when we no longer look to heaven, we look to the earth. I want to say something about the earth here, this planet that we live on. And I'll just throw this in for free. Scripture Scripture makes it abundantly clear that we are responsible to be good stewards of our planet. Absolutely, you you cannot get around it. We need to take care of the planet. We need to preserve wildlife. We need to recycle all the stuff that they want us to do. Pollutants. So I was reading this this week about plastic. We every minute of the day, one million plastic bottles are purchased. Every minute of every day, a million bottles. Only 10% of them get recycled. That leaves 90%, 900,000 every minute. They're ending up in a landfill or, worse yet, in the ocean. And they're going to be here for 1,000 years till they biodegrade. And as Christians, we should be concerned about the planet. God, the first, the first creative order that Adam ever got was to steward the planet. We're not stewarding it when we're trashing it. 
We should do that. But saving the planet can quickly become a God. And heed this warning. Saving the planet can be a God. When we shake our fist at God and turn from the fountain, saving the planet can be an idol. And many leaders in America have turned away from God and are now worshiping the planet instead of God. I don't care what political thing they put up to the front. If it is motivated by idolatry, it will fail. Christians need to be the ones stepping up and offering solutions for the planet to steward God's creation. But we have turned from God, and many have worshipped the earth now, and that needs to change. God must be first. We need the wisdom to steward our planet. Isaiah said, when you shake your fist at God and turn from Him, you'll look to the earth as your God. And when you don't have God, all you have is a planet. And Isaiah says, the end result will be distress, darkness, and a fearful gloom. And he says, they will be thrust into utter darkness. That means total darkness. The failure to give God His rightful place will only lead us to the worship of idols. And an idol is anything that takes a place in our lives that belongs only to God. I don't know if you realize it, but we are never spiritually neutral. Either we are growing in our pursuit of God or we are turning towards something else to replace Him. That's just a fact. When we are not growing spiritually, we are backsliding. When we are no longer passionate for His presence, our passions are already somewhere else, I guarantee it. Check it out. Think back through your life. When your passions turn from God, you are still passionate, but you're passionate towards something else or someone else. We do not stand still spiritually. And when your confidence is no longer in God, it will be redirected to idols. And ultimately, Isaiah says, we will end up in utter darkness. But here comes one of my favorite words in the Bible, Isaiah 9, verse 1. And it's the first word, nevertheless. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, He humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the future, He will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people who have been walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those who are living in the land in the shadow of death, the light has dawned. Yes, men have turned from the life-giving waters of Shalom, but nevertheless. Yes, men have turned from God to idols, but nevertheless, God says. Yes, men have shaken their fists to God and turned their eyes to the earth, but nevertheless. Isaiah says, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Just let, let confidence arise in you today. Whether you find yourself in a dark place through the circumstances around you, or whether you have turned from the spring of Shalom and turned to other gods that have left you in utter darkness, there is a nevertheless word that God wants to speak to us today. God is going to change it. Isaiah says, in the past, He humbled the land of Zebulun 
and Naphtali. What does that mean? Well, Zebulun and Naphtali, Naphtali were the two northernmost tribes. And when the invasion came from Assyria, they were the first ones to get knocked off. They took the brunt, the, the full force of the Assyrian army in the front lines, and they were devastated. But in the future, he said, that same area, that same part of the country, he is going to honor. And he calls it here with a, in a title of disdain, Galilee of the Gentiles. The northern part of Israel, Galilee of the Gentiles. What a disparaging term. That's where all the Gentiles live. That's where they persecute the Jews. He said, no, no, don't worry about it. In Galilee of the Gentiles, in a place that's overrun with heathenism, by the sea, meaning the Sea of Galilee, uh, along the Jordan River, something is going to happen. God says that is precisely where the light is going to spring up. And there the people are going to see a great light. The darkness of death will be dealt with, and that is exactly where Jesus Christ grew up and lived and began His ministry in Galilee of the Gentiles. Isn't that cool? Nevertheless, the light's going to come. Don't worry about it. It's going to come. And the sun arose among those who walked in darkness. Isaiah is saying to us, be confident, people of God. Your God will not leave you in darkness. The sun will rise one day. How's he going to do this? Who could pull off something like that? Who could heal the devastation that comes from the enemy? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 6 of Isaiah 9. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. One of my all-time favorite verses in the Bible. The child is born. That's his humanity. The son is given. That's his divinity. This God-man is coming. And he will make sense of all the twisted, defiant world empires. In fact, the government is going to be carried on his shoulders. The sovereign God is capable of carrying it all. We need to hear this in America today. The government is on God's shoulders. No matter what happens, He's got this. He can carry it. He can handle it. Look at his names. He's the wonderful counselor. You need counselors? He's the wonderful counselor. You need to see God's power? He's the mighty God. You need this light to be enduring? He's the everlasting Father. You need peace in the midst of it? He's the Prince of Peace. He's got this. And look at our future if you lack confidence today. He says in the next verse, of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. And He will reign on David's throne and over His kingdom, establishing it, upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. How's He going to do this? The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God's got this. There is a nevertheless to be spoken into the darkness of your life. God has got this. He is going to reveal Himself as all of these wonderful things that He's named. That 
is the story of Christmas. Into the hopelessness, into the utter darkness, a child is born. He's human. He's a man. He can relate to us. A son is given. He's God. He's divine. You don't need to be blinded by the darkness of sin. In the darkness of this world, the light has come. You know, in one of the, the beautiful coincidences of Scripture, one of them is found in John chapter 9. And Pastor Johnny showed us last week how the light was one of John's favorite subjects. And this is amazing. In chapter 9, you'll know this story most likely. John tells the story of a man who had been born blind. You remember the story. And it says in John 9, 1, As Jesus went along, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And when, while I am in the world... I am the light of the world. Now, Jesus finds a man who is blind from birth. Blindness means darkness. He couldn't see light. And Jesus said that he has work to do before the night will come. He's talking about his death. I'm only going to be here so long, and then I'm going to be gone. And so I need to let the light shine while I'm here, he says. Then he proclaims himself as the light of the world. And I really think... Jesus was thinking about the text that I just shared with you in Isaiah at that very moment. He was the promised light who would dispel the darkness. And I want you to look at what he did next. Look at verse 6. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, put it in the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. Did you catch it? Same spring, the same spring that Isaiah talked about when he said the light of the world was going to come, the same spring when the man washed his eyes in that spring, he received his sight, the light came. And the good news is the fountain is open to us. We don't need to walk in darkness any longer. The light of the world has come. The message of Christmas is a message of hope. and You can be confident that the God who keeps covenant will break through the darkness in your life and in this nation. I close with this story. It is told in a book by Ron Lee Davis courage to begin again. And he describes a scene of a bright, sunny morning in 18th century London. A man by the name of Robert Robinson on this beautiful day had a mood that was anything but beautiful. And all through the streets on that Sunday morning, people were hurrying to church. But in the midst of the crowds around him, Robinson was a lonely man. The sound of the church bells reminded him of the years in the past when his faith in God was strong and that church was an integral part of his life. 
It had been years since Robinson had set his foot in church, years of wandering, of disillusionment, gradual defection from the God that he once loved. That love for God, that passionate love for God had slowly burned out and left him dark and cold on the inside. Robinson, as he stood on the street corner, heard the clip-clop of a horse-drawn cab approaching behind him. And he lifted his hand to hail the driver to get a ride, and he saw that the cab was already occupied by a young woman who was dressed up for church. He waved the driver on, but the woman ordered the carriage to be stopped. So the carriage stopped in front of him, and she said, Sir, I would be happy to share this carriage with you. Are you going to church? Robinson paused, and then he didn't know why it came out of his mouth. He said, Yes, I'm going to church. And he stepped into the carriage, and he sat down beside the young woman. And as the carriage rolled forward, Robert Robinson and the woman exchanged introductions. And when he stated his name, there was a flash of recognition on her face. She said, that's an interesting coincidence. And she reached into her purse, pulled out a small book of poetry, opened it to a ribbon bookmark and handed him the book and said, I was just reading a verse by a poet named Robert Robinson. Could it be? He said, yes. He took the book, looked at the words and said, yes, I wrote these words years ago. She said, how wonderful. Imagine I'm sharing a car, a carriage with the author of the very lines that I've been reading. Amazing. But Robinson barely heard her. He was absorbed in the words that he was reading. They were words that would one day be set to music and become a great hymn of the faith, familiar to generations of Christians. Come, thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. And his eyes slipped to the bottom of the page where he read these words. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. He could barely read those last few lines as tears filled his eyes. And he said, I wrote these words. And I lived these words at one time, prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. And the woman understood. And she said, you also wrote, here's my heart, take and seal it. You can offer your heart again to God, Mr. Robinson. It's not too late. And it wasn't too late. Robert Robinson. In that moment, he turned his heart to God and walked with God the rest of his days. The light had come. When the light comes, it changes everything. And you can have a confidence today that the light will shine. I want to pray together with you as the worship team comes to do a closing song. Let's bow our hearts together and pray. Father, we come to you we thank you for the light of the world. We thank you that the light has come. We thank you, Father, that we can find direction and hope in that light. 
You know, if you're here today and you're just experiencing darkness, you don't feel like you've really wandered from God, but you just there's darkness around you and you need the Holy Spirit to give you a nevertheless moment right now. I want you just to call out to Him. And if you're here and you've turned from the light, you've turned from the source of light and you've been enamored by other things, other things of the world, there's hope for you today as well. You can turn your heart back to Him. If you're here and you've never even met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, today can change that. So I just encourage you to call out to Him wherever you are in those scenarios. We call out to you, oh God. Let the light come. If we don't know you, if we've never known you, we invite you to be Lord and Savior of our lives. Come, Lord Jesus. To those who have turned from the fountain, we pray a nevertheless moment today. They would return to the fountain, to the life source, to their relationship with God. To those who just through circumstance find themselves in darkness, we, we pray you'd reveal the light to them. God, let the light shine in our nation. Let our nation see the goodness of God again. Bring us back to that light. Lord, we're prone to wander. We feel that very deeply. But we give our hearts to you. We reconsecrate them in Jesus' name.